0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our
1: website at MyMillCreek.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Nathan Eberline. I'm one of the elders here at Mill Creek. We'll be reading today from Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. That's page 655 in the Bibles that are in the back of the seats. Uh, It's also on the back of the handout that you may have gotten when you came in. Uh, please join me in Romans 13. O, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can join you here today, uh, that we have a God who is worthy of praise and worship. Uh, we ask that you set our hearts and our minds on you, uh, that you would wake us uh, to your truth, uh, and that we would be in a place to be changed by your word. Uh, please be with Pastor Jeremy. Uh, please uh, help him to speak truth and to speak it boldly. And uh, please let us leave here uh, more uh, closely aligned with Jesus. Thank you for your blessing, Lord. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
0: Thank you, Nathan. This morning, we find ourselves. In the book of Romans, a letter written from Paul to the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. We live in Shawnee, but right now this letter is aimed at folks in Rome. And those in Rome are dealing with a particular culture at a particular time, some unique challenges. But before we get to Rome, I want you to come with me and go back in time. Even further back from when Paul wrote that to a city in northern Iraq, 600 B.C., it's the city of Babylon, and and this city, 600 B.C., the Israelites had been exiled against their will, moved to this city because they had disobeyed God. God gave the Israelites the Mosaic Covenant, summarized most simply in the Ten Commandments. And and God's heart to the Israelites had been, you will be my people. I will be your God. All you have to do is obey, and I will be with you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. But if you disobey, you will be punished. The Israelites The chosen people of God disobeyed, and God allowed the godless and pagan king Nebuchadnezzar to take over Jerusalem and then exile all these people to the city there of Babel. And those Israelites that were living in this city had quite a a time trying to figure out how they should acclimate to the new city. There would be two default tendencies. The first would be to say, you know, what did being the people of God even get me? Like, look, here I am in a new city, in a new place. Forget it. I'm not going to try to be the people of God anymore. I'm just going to assimilate into the culture. Hey, we've got a fresh start. Let's just act like all the rest of the Babylonians. We'll eat their food. We'll take their customs. We'll cheer for their teams. We'll worship their gods." Or, There were some who lived in this city and they said, We will never acclimate. We will live as a separatist community in our own ethnic enclave. We will be known as those people who are not Babylonians. Our kids will not marry their kids. They will not go to the same schools. They will not talk their talk. They will not eat their food. They will not worship their gods. The challenge for the people of God living. In a foreign and pagan context would lead to one of these two tendencies. Tell me, if, if you had been there in that city, 600 BC, which would you lean toward? Is your tendency to just go adopt the cultural values, cultural practices, and assimilate? Or are you of the mind that you would prefer to isolate and separate yourself from the culture. These are challenges that the Israelites felt 600 B.C., challenges Christians in Rome felt 2,000 years ago, challenges, friends, that you and I still feel today, do we not? We are trying to be the people of God, and in this time and place, we live in, or at least we're worshiping here in Shawnee, wherever your particular neighborhood is where you live and work and learn and, and, and play, we have these challenges. How are we going to interact with the culture? Well, I don't know how you experience feeling like an exile, but I've, there's been several places, even in this city, that I felt like an exile. None more than Arrowhead Stadium. For those of you who are newer to Mill Creek or just normal, you should understand I uh, have always cheered for the Broncos, and yes, I'm sick, and I continue to cheer for them, and the Lord is sanctifying me. He's going really slow in that way, and so you can keep praying for me. But there I was um, as a college student, my good friend's dad, he had box seats. It was Broncos Chiefs. He's like, you should come. And I was like, for real? Like, for free? Yes. Got there early ate all the good food before everybody else showed up, had my Bronco sweatshirt on, and then a coat zipped up, and as everybody started to come in, I was like, they-, they all Chiefs fans in this box. I wasn't about to take my coat off. And then the Chiefs did what they've been doing a lot lately, and they just, just crushed the Broncos. And everybody's going, yay, Chiefs. And I just, I'm embarrassed to admit, I didn't say anything. Just went along with the culture. I hated that, hated my response there, so I had a different response. I took my little daughter to go see a Chiefs fan, and we wanted to take this sign with us to the Chiefs fan, let him know we don't actually uh, agree with the kingdom. <laughs> Somebody photoshopped my picture. <laughs> the real sign says, See, look, I can't even get away with a funny joke at this place without getting the business. There's the real sign. And we thought, hey, we just want to let people know we are not from this kingdom. We are, we are from a kingdom of a different world. So my daughter and I thought it'd be fun to take this sign and just see what happens at Arrowhead Stadium when we said, hey, y'all would hate this sign if you were literate. Well, that's a picture from my backyard. I obviously didn't have the guts to take it there. And... Uh, <laughs> Special thanks, those tickets were given to us as well. And to be fair, the Chiefs fans were as nice as they've ever been when the Broncos once again got crushed. So, um, seriously though, there is this tendency when you are in a genuinely hostile culture that's paid to what you really believe, there's this tendency to either compromise just to fit in or isolate and it's true for those of us today. It was true in Rome, true back in Babel. So much so that God wanted his people to know his heart for them. And, and Jeremiah communicated the message of God to those Israelites in Babylon in Jeremiah 29.5. Let me read this to you. You can see it on the screen. Here's God's heart. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat produce. What the people of God in Babylon had to think about and what the people of God in Rome had to think about, what we have to think about today is, how are we to live as God's people in this culture and in this society, in our communities? And frankly, the temptation is to either totally compromise or totally separate. It's really hard to live in the tension. Paul knows this, and this is where he's going in his instructions to the Roman Christians in church today, and he's going to speak then for Christians in Rome, and we want to understand what he's saying to these Christians in Rome, so then we can rightly interpret, understand, and apply his message for us today. Two big questions Paul is going to answer in the scripture today. How are Christians to live in a pagan society? How are we supposed to do this? And then why? How and why? Those are the two questions Paul answers in the text. They will be the two questions in the sermon. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Romans thirteen verses eight to fourteen? If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one and a seat back, because I just want you to—I want to sh- I show you that that today I didn't just decide oh, I'm going to talk about how and why. It's it's actually from the scriptures that our sermon is anchored. Big idea number one: our first question. How are Christians to live in a pagan society? I answer this and I see the answer in verses eight to 10. Verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything. In a culture like ours today, we've got a lot of high interest debt out there, and Paul's saying, hmm, we want to owe no one anything except the debt of love. That love is this debt we'll never be able to repay friends and and this idea of oh no in anything it's actually connected to verse 7 if you just look up in romans chapter 13 verse 7 which we covered last week in the sermon in this politically radioactive charged culture we live in we talked about that last week so you came back which means i'm very grateful that you decided to show back up if you didn't hear that sermon um Be careful if you drink too much coffee before you listen to it. Had my heartbeat racing all last week. This week, a little easier as we see this connection, though. Pay to all what is owed to them. And then Paul says, owe no one anything except love. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Romans 13, maybe you're just checking out Mill Creek or you haven't been here for a while. You might be thinking, man, Paul is just like so random in how he decides what he wants to address. He kind of pinballs all over the place. but, But actually, that's not the case. If you look back at Romans 12, where Paul begins this important section of the letter, you'll find Paul's very logically and sequentially explaining to the Christians in Rome how it is that they are to relate to their community, to one another. And in fact, there in Romans 12, in this third part of his letter, Paul says to the Romans, hey, the gospel it really changes how you live personally. It changes you individually. The gospel is supposed to change you individually. And then in Romans 12, he moves to the gospel, it influences how you relate to people inside the church. And then he says the gospel actually influences how you relate to those outside the church. And then he says the gospel is so powerful, it actually informs how you relate to the government. And then in our section today, he's saying the gospel is so powerful, it actually informs how you are to relate to your culture. What I want you to get is Paul's not just pinballing all over the place. He he started in the very beginning of the letter of Romans 1 to 8, explaining the doctrinal foundations of the gospel, that all of us one day will face the judgment of God. And in view of God's righteous judgment, you and I are unrighteous. And I know that's bad news, and a lot of our culture doesn't want to hear this, but this is loving to share with one another that the truth of God's word is you and I will stand before God, and we are unrighteous. Whether we're just godless pagans, we've never been to church before, don't know why you showed up this morning, but here you are, you're curious what the Bible says. Here's the simple message you stand before God, and you will stand in judgment at the end of your life for what you have done. And by the way, we already know the verdict is you are guilty i never been to church before, man. Why are you breaking my head on this? Well, because that's what, the, that's what the Bible says. Some of you are like, well, it's a good thing I'm not some godless pagan. I'm actually really religious. i got bad news for you. You are also unrighteous before God. This is what Paul explains in chapters 1 and 2, man. That the godless pagans who aren't religious at all, they're guilty, so are the religious people. Because none of us are righteous on our own. Oh, but Jesus. The righteousness of God is available now through Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the gospel foundation that in part one, Paul is anchoring in. He moves to part two in Romans 9 to 11 where he explains, God's heart has always been for those who are not only ethnically Israelites. Yes, God's people are the Israelites and his promises to them will continue. But God's heart in the Old Testament has always been for Gentiles too. And God will keep his promises to both people. So part one, gospel foundations. Part two, God's going to keep his promises. And then part three, here's how the gospel changes you. And today we're seeing how Christians then are to live in a pagan society. Answer by owing no one but love. Owing nothing but love, excuse me. Owing nothing but love. But as Paul's saying, have no other debts except the debt of love. There would have been some in the Roman church that goes, time out, Paul. Time out, Paul. Bro, have you ever read the Old Testament? Because there's all of these commandments that are very important. Again, most clearly summarized in the Ten Commandments. And they would go, I can't be living in this godless pagan city with these godless pagan neighbors because I am called to the Ten Commandments. So I must live as a separatist. That's why Paul says, look in the text. Look what Paul says. Verse 9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Just like the Jews in Babylon and like these Roman Christians in this pagan culture, Paul's saying... No, 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 I am not calling you to live in a separatist ethnic enclave of only your little Christian people in this bubble, and I'm certainly not calling you to compromise. I'm calling you to love them and fulfill the law of God by loving your neighbor as yourself, meaning you can be the people of God and not compromise and not isolate. And we do that by loving others. By the way, loving others the way the Bible defines love, not by the way the culture defines love. Don't get confused, especially if you're new to the faith or younger in the faith. Don't be confused. The culture will say, hey, that gospel stuff, that's not very loving. But they don't define love. The Bible gets to define love. So let's love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's what the text is saying, and it answers this first question. If you're taking notes, how are Christians to live in a pagan society? Answer, fulfilling the law of God by loving their community. That's what Paul wanted them to get. That's what he's arguing for. Fulfill the law of God by loving your community. That's how you're supposed to live, Christians. Here's the way that I'm wording our application. Love where you live. Love where you live. Trying to push this truth into our lives today. Love where you live. Now, let me clarify this, because if you're sitting there elbowing your spouse and you're like, I knew it. We get to move, pastor told me. Because I hate my house. Love it or list it. List it. It's awful here. I'm not trying to talk you into leaving your place because you don't have some emotional response to the walls and the driveway and the fill in the blank. What What I'm wanting you rather to understand from this application, love, where you live is that God... Acts 17, if you need to look it up later, has sovereignly placed you in wherever you're living right now. It's not a chance. It's not random that you're living wherever you're living right now. And he's sovereignly, that means powerfully determined who your neighbors will be too. I don't know how, how old you think the world is. Some say 7,000 years, some say 7 billion years. However however old you think the world is, we can all agree, Acts 17, God decided for you to live in this day and age. And he could have had you living at any age in the history of the world, and he picked you to live right here, to live in your neighborhood, and he put your neighbors around there on purpose. put you there on purpose, whether you're living in a subdivision, whether you're living in an apartment, whether you're living downtown, whether right now you're just borrowing somebody's couch, you are put today in a place for a reason, and I want you to love where you live, loving those who you live around. Let me try to push this idea in. Do you love your neighbors? Whoever God's put you around, it's on purpose. I mean, if you ever go home and you're like, I met the coolest people. I met the coolest people. I don't know that they... I don't know that they love Jesus, but man, I really like them. That's not an accident. Love your neighbors. If, if you're new to this whole thing and you're like, where do I even start? Here's one. Just get to know their name. Just know their name. Do you know who lives on that side of you and what their name is? And do you know who lives on this other side? What's their name? Pastor, I've got that. Oh, good. Oh, good. Step two. Learn a little bit about them. Um, Do they have kids? Do they have a job? What do they do with their time? What are their hobbies? Ask them some questions like, do you like your job? If so, why? If not, why not? Ask good questions. Get to know your neighbors. Someone once told me that being listened to feels so much like love that most people can't tell the difference. That if you would ask a good question and then, like, really listen, which, by the way, is so rare, like, please put the phones away. <laughs> ask a question and then, like, listen, that a person goes, that feels like love. And we want to ask good questions and learn about our neighbors because we love them, because God sovereignly. Put us around and we want to get to know them better and understand some of what makes them tick. And then we take that information and it leads us to our knees where we're pleading before God to say, would you please grant me an opportunity to know my neighbors better and to share the message of Jesus with them. Gospel love is going to point us to Jesus. Love where you live by loving your neighbors. Another way to love where you live is by by doing good in your community, doing good in your city. For some of you, this might be like joining the homeowners association and volunteering there. It might be helping somebody that you know who needs some assistance. I know of several Mill Creekers, many Mill Creekers who volunteer at assisted living services, that's awesome. I know a lot of Mill Creekers who volunteer at Advice and Aid, Pregnancy Crisis Center here in town. Some of you Mill Creekers, you're coaching community teams with your kids. That's awesome. That's what we're talking about. Um, some of you volunteer at your local school. You host donuts on the driveway, just donuts to let the neighbors get to know one another. You don't have to do everything, but it would be good to do one thing. Like, love your community by doing good for it. And look, here's, here's a pro tip. You don't have to... F- Find something else to add to your calendar and schedule to check this box. Just take something you already love. Uh, Pastor Marty was, uh, if you didn't know, Pastor Marty loves fishing. He loves fishing, and he's going to fish no matter what. It's a wonderful thing. Pastor Marty does. Um, So Pastor Marty has gone, man, I like fishing, and there's other folks who like fishing, so I'm going to be intentional with this hobby. And he's found a group of guys who also like fishing, and so much so that they have a club. It's true. They have a club for fly fishermen, and if you're here and you love fly fishing, boy, do I have a club for you. Never been to that club. Didn't know anybody else would want to be in that club, but Pastor Marty's telling me they have a club, and that club gets together, and they want to do good things together. Hey, cool, man. Whatever floats your boat. And this group of of guys who get together in this fly fishing club have decided we want to provide opportunities for military veterans who are struggling with emotional distress a chance to have a safe place where they can go fishing, have a safe friend, and perhaps help that person develop emotionally. So Pastor Marty, who already likes fishing, has joined the club, and he's taking something he already loves, and he's leveraging it for the sake of the kingdom. Turns out he's going to be president for the next two years. So if you want to join the Fly Fishing Club here, he's the pres. You can go and serve alongside of him, and you can take guys out to go fishing. And anyways, uh, I love his title for it. It's, he calls it his missional fisional time. The, the, the pro tip is this. You don't need to add anything to your schedule. If, if you like watching the Chiefs, cool. Invite people over to watch the Chiefs. Lots of people like to do that. Maybe you don't like watching the Chiefs, but you have something else that's going on. Whatever your thing is, invite people to it. It's not doing more. It's just leveraging what you already love for the good of your neighbors, the good of your community love. Where you live, so that's how Christians are to live in a pagan culture. But let's move to Paul's second big idea in verses eleven to fourteen. Why must Christians be good citizens? Why must we be good citizens? Verse eleven. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone; the day is at hand. Paul now pivots to why, and I think this motivation is crucial for us to get, because if you leave here today going, okay, honey, I guess we better do something good for our neighbors, because pastor's hammering on us again today that we should bless our friends and neighbors, and I really want pastor to think a lot of me, so let's do something, because maybe we'll tell him, and he'll go, good job, guys, and that's what we really need, is pastor to think good of us. Like, if that's the only thing motivating you, you're going to crash and burn, if not in a week, in a month. Or if you think, oh, God's this cosmic landlord and I kind of do what he wants me to do and then he lets me keep my job and have a nice house and kind of get along with the world so cosmic land rent's due, all right, Missional, official, I guess, let's just go do it and maybe God will be nice to me. If that's what's motivating you, that's bad fuel. That fuel is not going to get your engine to the end. You need gospel fuel motivating you rightly and here's, here's the motivation Paul's tying into, He's saying, the end is coming soon. Salvation is closer than ever. Wake up. That's his fuel. Like, if you're on a long race, and you finally turn the corner, and there's the finish line, and you're tired. You're tired, but there's the finish line, man, and you've got an hour or two you're running a marathon, four or five hours of work behind you, you've only got a little bit longer. It's just right there. Come on. Paul doesn't use finish line metaphor here. He uses wake up metaphor, which reminds me of that time I've gone to sleep. Has this ever happened to you? You go to sleep, you're so tired. You're like asleep before your head hits the pillow, and then you wake up, and you're like, oh, I'm still so tired. Like, I feel a little rested, but oh, I wish I could sleep for a lot longer. And you're planning on waking up, let's say, at 6 a.m., and you're pretty sure it says 5.58 on the alarm clock, but you look over just to check, and the alarm clock says 11 p.m. You ever done that? And you're like, I'm crushing life right now, and I got seven more hours, yo. Oh, glory to God. (laughs) I love that feeling. You're tired, you're afraid you're going to have to get up. You got seven more hours of sleep. I think too many of us, that's how we view the Christian life. We, like, showed up today. Oh, I wish I could sleep some more. Oh, it's only 11 p.m. What the alarm clock in this text is saying, no, it's time to wake up. It's wake-up time. But if you're there going, whoa, that's ridiculous, Jeremy. This, this letter's 2,000 years old. How in the world does Paul think, how does Paul think that the, the end is coming so soon? He's clearly way off on his time continuum understanding. Keep in mind from the text, Paul isn't predicting that Jesus is coming back in a week or a year. He gives us no date For even Jesus didn't know the date of his return. He said as much in Matthew 24, 36. Only the Father knows when the second coming will occur. But we must be clear. Paul's not implying Jesus had to return in a short window of time. Rather, Paul's telling the Roman Christians, and by extension, those of us living in a culture and a society like we're in, that this is not our home. And every passing day should wake us up more to the reality that the coming salvation of Jesus is closer than ever. So don't be asleep, Christian. Wake up. Wake up. Now maybe you're sitting there going, Jesus is coming back? What in the world are you even talking about? Maybe you're not quite clear if you're new to Christianity that that Jesus in the story of the Bible is coming twice. Okay, so God, Israelites, waiting for the Messiah. Jesus came. We celebrate that at Christmas. We celebrate his birth. He's living. He lives for 30, 33-ish years. He lives the perfect life, perfectly fulfills the Ten Commandments. He dies on the cross, put in a tomb on Good Friday. So we celebrate on Good Friday. Three days later, Resurrection Sunday, he comes back to life. And then for 40 days, he's telling all of his disciples, you need to go tell people about me. And I'm leaving, I'm going to go up to the Father. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, but I will come again. So in the timeline, Jesus then ascends to heaven, and that's where he is right now. So he's already come once, but Jesus' promises, as he's right now preparing a place for us, right now he is petitioning the Father, praying on behalf of you and I as we live in the already-but-not-yet moment of world history because Jesus is coming again. He will come a second time. And when he comes a second time, it will be too late if you're still sleeping. It'll be too late if you don't know Jesus. So we need to wake up and realize this is not our home, and we live in a pagan culture, in a pagan city, with people who are probably trying to do their very best, but what they want underneath the surface really is Jesus. So if you're here and you think the whole point of life is a white picket fence on a handful of acres with a perfectly groomed Labrador retriever on your perfectly mown green grass, and your kids smiling with their hair plastered. And that's like the goal of life. You're not seeing clearly if in your heart you're struggling with substances and immorality and sensuality and backbiting and gossip. You're missing the spiritual battle Paul wants you to engage in from the text 12b. Then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love John Stott's quote here. He says, for the Christian... Life is not a sleep, but a battle. For the Christian, life is not a sleep, but a battle. If you're here and you feel like, I'm just kind of sleepwalking through this, bro. Paul's saying, wake up, get out of bed, Christian, and then put on the right clothes for the day. Don't put on all this sinful stuff. Orgies, drunkenness. Uh, Mom, what's orgies and drunkenness? Drunkenness. I would say those would be the equivalent of modern-day sexualized parties that celebrate addiction and intoxication. Or you can find some movies on Prime or Netflix or Hulu or Apple. Whatever your thing is, you're going to find entertainment that does this celebration of sexualized parties and addiction and intoxication. We're not trying to put those on. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't give us positive here. He only gives us what to not put on. But if you want to know what positive attributes to put on, you could go to Galatians 5 for the fruit of the Spirit. That's what to put on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Colossians 3, let's put on purity, humility, self control, sober mindedness, forgiveness. The end is coming soon. Let's not live like the world. Let's not be sleeping with bedhead. Let's wake up and live for Christ now. That's the application for the second point. Live for Christ now. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying Jesus is going to come back, and this is his motivation for us that we would live mindful that one day we really are going to stand before the judgment of God. And when Jesus comes back, this judgment will be imminent. Since we're going to face judgment, let's live for Christ now. Let me try to push this in a bit. Any of you, are you living for Christ now, or frankly, are you a sleepy Christian? Are you a sleepy Christian? Here's, here's what I'm thinking sleepy Christians are. Man, they, they have the right answers. I could give you a test. It's fine, I know. Jesus is the son of God. He came at Christmas. He bre- blah, 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 blah. But frankly, what animates your heart, what wakes you up in the morning, what you spend more time thinking and dreaming about is not Jesus' second coming, but it's whatever this world has indoctrinated into your brain as the good life. Like if you're here and you think the good life is something Outside of the text, you're a sleepy Christian. I want you to wake up. That's Paul's heart. This is not our home. No matter how comfortable you make it, no matter how beautiful you've got your little place, no matter how comfy your bed in, this is not your home. Man, We're called to a cosmic spiritual battle for the souls of people, and eternity hangs in the balance. So if you're here and you're tinkering with addiction and partying, if you're toying with sex and orgies and sensuality, if you just flippantly enjoy quarrels and jealousy, man, wake up! Throw those off! Put on Jesus Christ! God's grace should motivate you to realize that God's even more incredible and our sin is even more deplorable and the truth of the gospel is even more exceptional than we realize. And wake up in view of the second coming. Live for Christ now. If you want more on that, Pastor John Piper wrote a book. We have a couple extra copies to give away. Don't waste your life. I'd encourage you to read it. Second suggestion would be to live with eternity in mind. Live with eternity in mind. Scripture tells us after Jesus' second coming, we will live with and enjoy God forever, forever. And we live in a culture, in a society, a community and city that doesn't realize your soul will live forever. Every person in this room, any person who's listening to me online or that's going to download this podcast. You have an eternal soul. You will never, ever perish. And for eternity, you will live in one of two realities, heaven with the father and the trinity in perfect love and harmony forever and ever, enjoying God and living with him or eternal conscious punishment. Those are the two destinations that the scriptures indicate we will go to, and in view of this eternity, let's live today realizing how you live actually matters in eternity. It actually matters. And God actually, if you're a Christian, has works for you to do. He says so in Ephesians 2.10, uh, Paul writes, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has good works for you to do, Christian. Wake up. Go do those good works. And this should influence where you live, the decisions you make about the weekend, whether you're going to put your kids in special activities, what you are going to prioritize as a family, how you do vacations, how you budget. This eternal perspective influences everything. This isn't our home. We can't take any of this with us. Live with eternity in mind. Here's Paul's point in our text is in, in two words. The sermon of the sentence is this: love now. Love now. Love, the way the Bible de- defines it, now, immediately. Wake up. It is time to go love now. And of course. It is, of course, only because Jesus embodied this that we're able to love now. Right? Jesus Christ. He lived in his city and culture, and he didn't compromise, and yet he didn't isolate either. Jesus perfectly walked this tension, and he fulfilled the law of God, loving his neighbor as himself. In fact, he demonstrated the greatest love. Greater love has no man than this, than he lays down his life. He loved his neighbor as himself. He wasn't sleepwalking. Jesus brought salvation. He cast off the works of the darkness, and he lived in the light, walking properly, but it led to the cross. But at the cross, he took the sins of the world for all the ways you and I don't love now. For all the ways that we've previously failed our neighbors and we've hated our cities and we've not really even liked our neighbors and we've been more selfish with our time and we've tinkered around with all these sinful pleasures for all the ways that we've been failing up until now man all of that is wiped white as snow and in fact whatever if you're in christ whatever you're going to do tomorrow and all the ways that you fail him in the future he paid for all of it on the cross all the shame all the condemnation is gone and now you are you are able to love now because of the cross And we know it was all complete because at the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. If if you're here and you don't know Christ, oh man, that's what you're really looking for. I don't know what you are dreaming about. I don't know where you think hope is found, but it's ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Whatever comfort issues you have, approval issues you have, control issues you have, power issues you have, all of that underneath it ultimately is a desire to know Jesus to have true justice, to have true righteousness. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, wake up. Call on him today. He would save you. For those of you here who do, and love now. Love now. The trumpet is going to sound. And on that day, man, I don't want you metaphorically sitting there with bedhead wiping your eyes, like, oh, hon- honey, wake up. Trumpet sounding. Time to get out of bed. Jesus is coming. I hope Jesus, when he shows up, he finds you engaged in this cosmic spiritual battle, working on behalf of the gospel, fulfilling the good works he prepared for you. Holy Spirit, would you do this in our lives? Pray with me, please. Christ, we need you to properly motivate us and to allow us to do what you've called us to do. Lord, even this afternoon, we're gonna have opportunities to love now. Would you help us do it? Lord, for anyone in here who does not believe the gospel yet. Holy Spirit, take your word and powerfully save. Lord, I pray we'd be surrendered to you and live with eternity in mind. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.